Deterring the Boat People, Explaining the Australian Government's People Swap Response to Asylum Seekers, by Jaffa McKenzie and Riza Hazmath. Introduction, Section 1. Over the last two decades, the Australian government has taken an increasingly firm stance towards asylum seekers who attempt to arrive in Australia by boat. One of the most aggressive government responses to curbing the increase of asylum seekers in recent years has been the Malaysian People Swap, formed through a bilateral agreement signed on 25th of July 2011 by Australia and Malaysia. Under this arrangement, the first 800 asylum seekers to arrive in Australia by boat were to be transferred to Malaysia in return for Australia accepting 4,000 refugees from Malaysia. The people swap was faced with many obstacles. In August 2011, the policy was declared unlawful by the High Court of Australia in a successful challenge launched on behalf of two asylum seekers facing deportation under the arrangement on the basis that Malaysia is not legally bound to provide the asylum seeker protections required under Australian law. In response, Julia Gillard's Labour government twice attempted to pass legislative amendments, first in September 2011, then again in June 2012, to circumvent the High Court ruling and allow for the implementation of the People Swap. Despite the concerted efforts of the government on both occasions, it was unsuccessful. To contextualize the People Swap response, we can trace four waves of boat people, or irregular maritime arrivals, as it is formally known. The first wave of arrivals in 1976 to 1981 was a relatively small cohort who came mainly from Vietnam. Although this first wave was initially received by the Australian public with empathy, a negative public reaction to the small numbers of boat people soon began to grow. As the number of arrivals increased from 1989 to 1998, the second wave was accompanied by a greater frequency of detention over longer periods. The issue of boat arrivals heightened even further during the third wave from 1999 to 2001, which saw a significant jump in asylum seeker numbers and was met with a stronger government response characterized by the Tampa Affair and the subsequent Pacific Solution. The Tampa Affair unfolded in August 2001 when John Howard's government refused the Norwegian shipping boat, the MV Tampa, permission to dock on the Australian territory of Christmas Island after rescuing a sinking boat of asylum seekers on Australia's request. What ensued over the following days was a standoff until the Howard's Liberal government implemented a policy commonly known as the Pacific Solution. The Pacific Solution encompassed three key features. Firstly, certain territories, notably Christmas Island, Cocos Island and Ashmore Reef, were excised from Australia's migration zone, meaning that when landing on these islands, asylum seekers could not apply to Australia for refugee status. Secondly, the government was granted powers that allowed the Navy to interdict asylum seekers heading to Australia by boat. 
Finally, arrangements were made with Nauru and Papai New Guinea to establish detention centers for the processing of asylum seekers, thus establishing Australia's system of offshore processing. Alongside these measures, this period witnessed the introduction of temporary protection visas, also known as TPVs, granted up to three years for those unauthorized asylum seekers who were found to be genuine refugees. After 2001, the number of asylum seekers arriving by boat dropped dramatically, with one person arriving in 2002 and an average of 57 people each subsequent year until Kevin Rudd's Labour government was elected in 2007. In 2008, the Rudd government honoured its election promise to take a more humane approach to asylum seekers and dismantled the Pacific Solution and TPVs. What followed was another spike in asylum seekers and the commencement of the fourth wave, from 2009 to the present day. With 2,726 arrivals on 60 boats in 2009, followed by a record 6,555 on 134 boats in 2010, and 4,565 on 69 boats in 2011. This period provoked a clear toughening of Labour Party policy and political discourse on asylum seekers, a shift that drives the focus of the present day. Addressing the relative rise in boat arrivals on Australia's shores soon became a policy imperative for parties on either side of Australia's political spectrum, Labour as well as the coalition. In particular, Deterring the boat people featured front and centre in the theatre of the 2000 election, which was preceded by the outsting of Kevin Rudd as Prime Minister, delivered a hung parliament and resulted in Julia Gillard leading a Labour minority government. In Gillard's pre-election speech at the Lowy Institute, she urged voters to discuss the facts on asylum seekers, Yet, she also reassured the public that it is wrong to label people who have concerns about unauthorized arrivals as rednecks, because expressing a desire for a clear and firm policy to deal with a very difficult problem does not make you a racist. Mimicking the Pacific Solution, Gillard announced plans to open a regional processing center in East Timor. Providing the justification that East Timor was a signatory to the Refugee Convention, as summed up by Mega Logenis, this was a period where Labour, governed by the Conservative Populist Manual, was cowed by Howard and captured by the Poles. Against this backdrop, using qualitative and quantitative content analysis, this study seeks to discern the main explanatory variables that influence the formation of the People Swap policy. This process involved the sorting of primary source data into relevant emergent themes or statements in order to identify explanations or themes that account for government action. Where appropriate, the counting of words and concepts was used as a method to identify patterns and trends. Data was gathered until saturation was achieved. Four primary sources were utilized. Media releases, press conferences, House of Representatives legislative debate, 
debates, and question time from the 7th of May 2011, when the People's Swap was first announced, until the 28th of June in 2012, with the government's final attempt to legislate the policy. In total, the evidence analyzed includes the transcripts of four government media releases, 10 press conferences, two parliamentary debates, each lasting over five hours, and all 102 questions and responses relating to asylum seekers during question time. As preview, the study will suggest three factors to have influenced the formation of the people swap response. One, populist appeal, two, wedge politics, and three, a culture of control. Section 2. Populist Appeal Although populism is an elusive idea that has proved notoriously difficult to define, at its core it involves vague appeals to the people and an anti-elitist sentiment. For Hindus and Saar, populist public discourse in Australia is constructed through a, bina a binary us-and-them framework where opposition to elites, them, often goes together with a claim to speak for ordinary people, us. As highlighted by Johnson, indicative of this us-and-them construction was the coalition's 2001 election catch cry, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. For the coalition, anti-elitism has proved a powerful rhetorical source. This is no clearer than under John Howard, who sought to engage the non-elites who were characterized as ordinary Australians and Howard's battlers. Cleavages were constructed with the elites rejected as something outside of the mainstream, while the fear, resentments, and insecurities of ordinary Australians were nurtured. As put by Klein, the elites were perceived as demanding unfairly generous treatment for the unworthy. With the public suffering a compassion fatigue, Howard's politics fostered a popular cultural backlash against boat people trying to exploit our compassion and generosity. In much of the literature, the populist backlash to boat people is driven by a national anxiety. Some have argued that the Howard government's policies were shaped by a national concern over Australian identity and a fear of invasion grounded in the historical threat of being swamped by Australia's Asian northern neighbours. Building on this theme, McKay et al. argued that public opinion towards asylum seekers has been influenced by the perceived threat they pose to the Australian way of life, as well as the view that asylum seekers exploit Australia's systems and processes. For Burke, the Howard government's rhetoric about protecting the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Australia in the face of boat people represents an image of an insecure, vulnerable Australian subject under perpetual threat. This point is picked up by McNevin, who argues that the government's tough policies are a counterbalance to Australia's neoliberal trend towards economic openness in recent decades, a performance of political closure aimed at addressing national anxieties over porous national borders. Our findings suggest a continued prevalence of populist rhetoric 
through the Gillard government's discourse on asylum seekers, although it was less overt than the language witnessed during the Howard era. It became the people smugglers rather than asylum seekers who were demonized. People smuggling was not only framed by the government as being criminal, it was an evil business, with its perpetrators depicted as predators who profit, trade, and prey on human misery and the desperation of others. In order to deal with such evil, Julia Gillard and former immigration minister Chris Bowen adopted aggressive language. The most common phrases were to smash or break the people smugglers' trade, with terms such as eliminate, tackle, and combat also popular. While the Gillard government used this terminology in media releases and press conferences during the reference period, such language was largely absent from parliamentary debates. This potentially indicates the public was the audience to which the demonization of people smugglers was directed. Interestingly, not only did the government utilize simplistic language in these forms, it avoided the more elitist language associated with human rights and international obligations. While Gillard was far from being perceived as in tough with the views of ordinary people as Howard was, the populist overtones to her language may suggest such a desire. It is significant that the Gillard government had replaced asylum seekers with people smugglers as the overtly demonized subject. This appears to have allowed the government to channel negative sentiment towards the phenomena of asylum boat arrivals, yet distinguish the rhetoric of the Labour government from that experienced under the coalition. This is most evident in Gillard's language following the High Court's circumven circumvention of the people swap. Gillard was careful to frame boats as the problem rather than the asylum seekers. I believe it is very important if we do see more boats to separate in the community's mind, in all of our minds, the problem of seeing more boats from the people who are on those boats. It is not in my mind a question of blaming the people who are on those boats. In the same breath, however, Gillard attempted to appeal to mainstream Australia. We are at a real risk of seeing more boats, and I understand that will cause community anxiety. Statements such as this offer support to the view that Australia's negative response to boat people is driven by a national anxiety. Despite the qualification by Gillard that it is the boats, not the people on the boats, that are the problem, her choice to resonate with potential community anxiety nonetheless serves to legitimize the view that boat arrivals are a threat or cause for fear. The findings highlight some noteworthy distinctions between the characterizations of asylum seekers witnessed in the Howard era and those under Gillard. During the Gillard government, the rhetoric in relation to asylum seekers was, in part, more positive than a decade prior. Asylum seekers were no longer presented as a threat to family values and the Australian way of life as was, as was depicted by Slattery in her analysis of the children overboard scandal. Rather, asylum seekers were commonly framed in a more sympathetic light as people who were desperate and the victims of people smugglers. While no longer overtly demonized, asylum seekers arriving on Australia by boat nonetheless remained delegitimized through judgments made of their deservingness. Implicitly, they were framed as a problem. 
Across all analyzed primary sources, the derogatory term Q-jumpers was not once used by Gillard's government. Yet the notion of there being an orderly queue that asylum seekers should join was often alluded to. Indeed, one of the trumpeted benefits of the people swap was that it sent the message, if you arrive in Australian waters and are taken to Malaysia, you will go to the back of the queue. Not only that, they would have to take their place alongside 90,000 asylum seekers and they will wait their turn. Notwithstanding the point that there is no orderly queue, the government's rhetoric resonated with notions of fairness and in turn implied that asylum seekers who arrived by boat were less deserving of protection or even concern. In contrast, those refugees waiting in the queue were depicted as deserving. Unlike boat people, those refugees in Malaysia had waited often for many years to get a chance at a new life and a new start in a country like Australia. Appealing to Australian ethos of a fair go, the government's suggestion that refugees were jumping the queue resonates with and may potentially feed populist resentment. This is noteworthy as it demonstrates a continuation of the populist disapproval of boat people exemplified under the Howard government. Asylum seekers who arrived by boat appeared to be further delegitimized by the juxtaposition of the terms genuine refugees, and irregular arrivals. While those who arrived by boat were termed irregular, those refugees waiting offshore, offshore were consistently described as genuine. This contrast depicted asylum seekers who arrived by boat as less worthy, which in turn may have encouraged populist antipathy to their cause. Across press conference, media release, and question time sources, the phrase genuine refugees was mentioned 21 times spanning the reference period. These references were in relation to the 4,000 refugees to be transferred from Malaysia. Those 800 asylum seekers to be sent to Malaysia, however, were not once described as refugees, let alone genuine ones, instead labeled as irregular. The combination of such terminology provides a striking contrast. The arrangement provides for the transfer from Australia to Malaysia of up to 800 irregular maritime arrivals and formalizes Australia's commitment to accept 1,000 additional genuine refugees from Malaysia every year for the next four years. It is debatable as to whether these terms were used to bolster support for increasing the humanitarian intake by emphasizing that refugees chosen from Malaysia are genuine and therefore deserving, or to justify sending 800 asylum seekers to Malaysia or perhaps both. Former Prime Minister Gillard's implicit judgment that boat people were less deserving of Australia's compassion potentially represented an attempt to separate herself from those elites who demand unfairly generous treatment for the unworthy. As was seen under Howard, populism has continued to influence the asylum policy agenda. Finally, it is important to point out that the Gillard government's populist direction on asylum seeker policy positioned the Labour Party at odds with its previous stance on the issue. Indeed, the Malaysian people swap was the manifestation of two policy backflips. First, on pursuing a policy of offshore processing. Second, doing so in a country not signatory to the Refugee Convention. This point was not missed by the coalition, as highlighted throughout both examined 
legislative debates. Liberal MPs recalled how the introduction of the Pacific Solution and subsequent 2001 election had drawn accusations of race-baiting, that we were rednecks, that we were without hearts, that we were dog-whistling, and that we were xenophobes or were playing xenophobic politics. Ridiculing the government, Liberal MPs reminded the then-immigration minister Bowen of his previously stated view that asylum seekers should be treated the same regardless of how they land. Similarly, former immigration minister Chris Evans was reminded of when he described the day the Pacific Solution was formally dismantled as his proudest day in politics. This is particularly significant since it demonstrates the extent to which the Labour Party shifted its stance on asylum seekers under Gillard's leadership. The consequence of this has been the convergence of Labour's approach to boat people with that of the coalition. For the Australian government, deterrence has seemingly become paramount regardless of which party is in power. Section 3. Wedge Politics for Wilson and Turnbull, wedge politics is a calculated political tactic aimed at using divisive social issues to gain political support, weaken opponents, and strengthen control over the political agenda. In doing so, wedge politics takes advantage of issues or policies that undermine the support base of a political opponent. Two key tactical advantages arise from this strategy. Firstly, by tapping into populist sentiment over a divisive social issue, a political party can attract support from its opponent's support base. Secondly, the wedged political party is consequently forced to either distance itself from unpopular causes or face political marginalization. The populist nature of the asylum seeker debate has allowed wedge politics to flourish. A likely corollary of this was the people swap. The People Swap provides an interesting case since the political debate surrounding it demonstrated not only how wedge politics could be used as an effective political strategy, in this instance by the coalition, but also the impact that this could have on the policies of the wedged political opponent, in this case, the Gillard government. The findings that provide some support to this contention are twofold. Firstly, analysis of the coalition's rhetoric and policies suggests that wedge politics may have been used against the government for political advantage. Secondly, the government's reaction to the, the asylum debate may also support this view. With the Gillard government's political base divided over the issue, it seems the people swap was an attempt to balance the competing interests of its mainstream and elitist constituencies. In the words of Kevin Rudd, the people swap was a manifestation of Labour's lurch to the right on the issue of asylum seekers in a bid to rein in its suburban working class voters. The most persuasive evidence of this is found in Labour's two major policy backflips that surfaced during this period, first by introducing an offshore processing policy at all, then by doing so in a nation not signatory to the Refugee Convention. In consideration that this shift made Labour vulnerable to losing its elitist progressive voters to the left, notably to political parties such as the Greens, 
Labor's concurrent emphasis on the people swap's humanitarian benefits may indicate a desire to appease such liberal voters. Our findings suggest that the divisive issue of asylum seekers' politics may have been used by the coalition to drive a wedge through Labour's political support base. While it is acknowledged that deciphering political intent is problematic and uh, open to conjecture, the rhetoric and contradictions of the opposition nonetheless suggests that the coalition may have exploited the asylum debate for political advantage. It is also noted that resentments and antipathies towards minorities, in this case asylum seekers, do not form in a vacuum. Accordingly, the wedge politics at play over the people swap should be understood as a continuation of the political climate established under Howard. Two key patterns emerge from the empirical evidence to support this claim. The first is the initial trend among coalition MPs to criticize the people swap for being five-for-one deal. Using a simplistic metaphor with populist overtones, Liberal MP Don Randall illustrated why offering protection to more refugees was a bad idea. Walk through your shopping centers and ask anyone if they think the five-for-one swap is a good deal. The government then said to Malaysia, have we got a deal for you? We'll take 4,000 of yours at a great expense, and at a great expense, we'll give you 800 of ours, and we'll pay for the lot. Guess what? We think that's a good deal. As the argument follows, swapping 800 people for 4,000 was a bad deal and a dud deal, as no serious self-respecting country would allow itself to be a dumping ground for other countries' problems. Such rhetoric fits with Wilson and Turnbull's observation that wedge politics involves linking political opponents with the unpopular or stigmatized social issues or groups. In this case, linking labor with the elitist fashion of refugee protection. What is interesting, furthermore, is the discernible shift that occurred partway through the reference period. Despite the five-for-one deal line of attack being common among coalition MPs in the months following the initial policy announcement, towards the end of the reference period, the it was scarcely mentioned. Instead, the coalition began to reject the people swap for betraying refugee rights, with the debate transforming into one where offshore processing policies were contested on human- humanitarian grounds. Not only did these criticism expose the rift in Labour's political base, the conflicting nature of the coalition's objections suggests that they were the product of political tactic rather than principle. This raises the second pattern that potentially suggests wedge politics were at play, the use of the refugee convention in political discourse. The question of whether offshore processing should be permitted in nations that were signatory to the Refugee Convention was one that has featured heavily across the study's sources. For instance, the Refugee Convention was mentioned 97 times during the offshore processing bill debate, 102 times during the Bali process bill debate, and 89 times across the entire question time reference period. Long before it became party to the Refugee Convention, Nauru had been a proud feature of the coalition's Pacific Solution. As boasted by Tony Abbott, we invented offshore processing. We have the patent on offshore processing. 
Yet, when Nauru acceded to the refugee convention in June 2011, the terms of the asylum debate shifted dramatically. The political debate could then be divided along the lines of whether to send asylum seekers to a nation signatory to the refugee convention, such as Nauru, or a nation that was not, such as Malaysia. In fact, both amendments proposed by the coalition to the offshore processing bill in 2011 and Bali Process Bill in 2012 were to ensure asylum seekers were sent to nations signatory to the Refugee Convention. The coalition's seemingly delayed enthusiasm for the international treaty is important to note because it suggests that opposition's approach may have been driven by political opportunism. Moreover, consideration of the coalition's other asylum policies indicates that they were not overtly concerned about sending refugees to non-signatory nations. This was most pronounced with Abbott's policy of turn back the boats, which would involve the Navy forcing boats to return to their port of origin, in most cases Indonesia. As put by Labour MP Lori Ferguson, there are some in this house who say it is okay to send boats to Indonesia with no protections negotiated, but it is not okay to send planes to Malaysia with protections negotiated. While the coalition's full intent cannot be fully affirmed, the findings suggest that they may have used the Refugee Convention to exasperate the rift between the toughening of Labour Party policy as encompassed in the People Swap and the humanitarian concerns of Labour's Liberal Left constituency. This, we posit, is theoretically interesting for the understanding of wedge politics. It diverges from the common use of the political tactic where populist issues are used to gain political support by attracting voters from an opponent's support base. Instead, it is pursuing policies that appeal to the more ideologically distant side of its opponent's political base. The impact of this is unlikely to be the attraction of such voters, although this may be possible, but rather to exasperate the wedge that has already been established. Thus, it fits Wilson and Turnbull's definition of the political strategy insofar that it weakens opponents and strengthens control over the political agenda. With the people swap, labor was cornered, eager to take a tough approach to asylum seekers, yet unwilling to adopt its conservative counterpart's exact policy of offshore processing on Nauru. Labour had found itself continuing to pursue a policy in spite of it being rejected by the High Court and twice by Parliament. Section 4. A Culture of Control We suggest that Australian immigration policy, and in turn asylum seeker policy, is partly driven by a culture of control. As contended by Cronin, Australia is truly the lucky country in terms of its ability to manage its borders. Girt by sea and isolated in the southern corner of the world, Australia's geography has bestowed on the nation the ability to control who comes in and out of the nation and under what circumstances. This is now the expectation, and thus Australians are uncomfortable with any boat people arriving on their shores. The idea of control has become a fixation of the electorate, where the government offers control rhetoric and control solutions, while the opposition points to the government's control failings. 
It was not until the late 1980s and the second wave of arrivals that the government's ability to control its borders came under actual threat, prompting sweeping changes to Australia's immigration policy. The objective of these changes was to establish effective mechanisms in legislation for managing immigration, functioning to curtail the increasing numbers of refugee claims and reduce judicial intervention. On this point, Palmer has asked the question, why and to what purpose the quest for control? Palmer highlighted the argument that maintaining a culture of control is essential for nation-building. As posed by one minister, I can understand people say there is a culture of control, but you can only conduct good immigration policy and good refugee policy if you are able to manage your borders. More specifically, as the number of asylum seekers arriving by boat increases, this produces a negative outcome for immigration policy as a whole, as public support for immigration of any kind is likely to fall. The current study has found a culture of control to be most perennial when considering the paradox encompassed in the policy design, swapping 800 potential refugees for 4,000 refugees. The lopsided nature of the people swap suggests it is not so much the refugees that are the issue, but rather the circumstances by which they reach Australia. Unlike offshore refugees, onshore refugees enter Australia through the uncontrolled door, where the government is unable to control the type of refugee they accept, nor the number who arrive. As highlighted by Croc, asylum seekers represent a direct threat to the orderly conduct of a migration program because they come uninvited and yet mandate consideration as a result of Australia ratifying the Refugee Convention. The People Swap is an attempt to remedy this. By using deportation to Malaysia as a deterrent, control may be restored to the Australian government. Labour MP David Bradbury took up this argument in his offshore processing bill speech. Although he was one of the few Labour MPs who alluded to a culture of control, his words provide interesting insight. Defending the people swap, he framed the policy as in harmony with labor values and the party's history and tradition. Consistent with the logic of the people swap, Bradbury drew comparisons with labor governments that welcomed large group of immigrants, yet opposed any uncontrolled arrivals of asylum seekers by sea. This is why Gao Wiltlam would, on the one hand, resist Vietnamese boat arrivals, but, on the other, dismantle Australia's white Australia policy. This is why Bob Hawke embraced thousands of Chinese students post-TNM Square, but resisted boat arrivals from Cambodia. This is why the Keating government could champion multiculturalism like no other government before it, but at the same time introduce mandatory detention. Thus, although Australia is now prepared to embrace and welcome an extra 1,000 refugees each year, this is contingent on whether the government can insist upon the ability to exercise some control over the flow of people. Interestingly, Bradbury argued that control is a necessity for the purpose of maintaining the success of multiculturalism in Australia. 
At first glance, restricting certain groups of asylum seekers from protection in Australia may seem to run, run counter to fostering multiculturalism. This logic, however, is consistent with the note with that noted by Palmer, who highlights a rationalization as to why maintaining control is necessary. If numbers of asylum seekers increase, public support for any type of immigration is expected to decrease. While the people swap seemed to be an attempt by the Gillard government to offer control solutions to perceived control failings, the use of control rhetoric was less apparent in the primary sources. What this may suggest is a desire of the part of the government to differentiate itself from the coalition's talk of control characterized by Howard's 2001 election platform, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. That said, however, when the people swap came under significant pressure following high court judgment, the tone of the government's rhetoric shifted significantly. In the first five press conferences delivered by either Julia Gillard or Chris Bowen, border protection was mentioned once, with Gillard simply stating on the 25th of July 2011, this agreement will better secure our borders. Yet, in the final three press conferences on 1st and the 12th of September and the 13th of October in 2011, at both ends of the High Court challenge, border control rhetoric featured more frequently. For example, on the 1st of September 2011, Gillard assured the public, we've got more assets patrolling our border than we've ever had before, and that we'll continue to do everything that we do to patrol and protect Australia's borders. Gillard went on to say how she was concerned about what the High Court case means in terms of boats trying to make their way to Australia, before repeating once more that the government will continue patrolling and protecting our borders. On the 12th of September, Gillard referred back to when the Keating government formally introduced mandatory detention in 1992, framing border protection as part of the Labour Party's legacy. We are a political party that has always been prepared to take the steps necessary to have border protection and to ensure that we have an orderly migration system. I refer you in that regard to the creation of mandatory detention by Minister Gary Hand. That is our heritage. That is who we are. Furthermore, Gillard suggested that this is not about the politics, but rather it was about restoring the proper state of affairs. This is about Australia controlling our immigration settings and particularly government controlling our immigration settings. The timing of this is significant because it potentially indicates that Gillard chose to resort to border control rhetoric at a time when her government's policy was under heightened pressure. That the government opted to offer control rhetoric and persist with its control solution, the people swap, in spite of the high court ruling, supports the view that a culture of control remains a pervasive influence on the direction of asylum policy in Australia. Section 5. Discussion and Conclusion Our findings suggest that populism, wedge politics, and a culture of control were all explanatory factors behind the people swap. 
While the use of language has shifted subtly when comparing the Gillard era to that of Howard, at its core, the policy debate has remained the same. This holds numerous negative implications for the quality of Australia's political debate and policy formulation, as well as for asylum seekers and refugees themselves. There is a nexus between populism, wedge politics, and the increasing number of asylum seeker boats coming to Australia. These three dimensions appear to feed off each other. As boatloads of asylum seekers increase, this fuels populist antipathy towards asylum seekers and resentment of the government. With populist sentiment flourishing, wedge politics have been at play. For the Gillard government, this has left it politically weakened and lacking control over the political agenda. The dominance of populism and shrewd wedge tactics has implications for the quality of Australia's political debate. As put by Ware, the pragmatic business of staying in power has disintegrated the worth of political discourse with politics portrayed it as nothing but grubby business. This is most lucid in relation to Australia's asylum seeker debate, with both major parties guilty in their hypocrisy. Despite the centrality of the Refugee Convention in parliamentary debates, it appears nothing but a political tool. For Labour, it has gone from being a necessary condition to the very clause it has twice rejected on the floor of Parliament. For the Coalition, it seems not only that Nauru has become party to the Refugee Convention, that its importance has been trumpeted, an enthusiasm incompatible with Abbott's turn-back-the-boats policy. Indeed, it appears the insidious objective for both parties is electability, and in a populist climate this has consequences not only for the tenor of debate, but also the quality of policies pursued. The prevalence of populism and wedge politics holds consequences for the asylum policy agenda. Firstly, it pushes governments to create short-term and expedient policy-making. Such pursuit of a quick fix is nowhere clearer than in the people's swap. An ad hoc trade, the people's swap, is a short-sighted policy that neglects the more critical policy question of addressing the source of people movements. Secondly, with the Labour Party matching the coalition in their tough approach, Australia has been set on a trajectory where sending refugees offshore has become the new norm. Australia's attitude of either offshore processing in nations such as Nauru, Papua New Guinea, or East Timor, or its variant offshore dumping through policies such as the people swap or turning boats back to Indonesia, raises questions as to whether Australia is doing its fair share to deal with what is a significant global problem. Furthermore, given that the culture of control may continue to influence Australia's response to asylum seekers, this holds significance for the future direction of asylum policy. Firstly, the pervasive culture of control illustrates how control imperatives can trump economic and humanitarian concerns when it comes to asylum policy in Australia. What has been fostered is a false expectation that the government can and should control all movements of people across Australian borders. It is here that links emerge between a culture of control and populism in their influence on asylum policy. 
Asylum seekers not only challenge the view that the government controls exactly who may enter the nation, by arriving by boat, they do so in a very visible way that can fuel public debate over the issue. An unfortunate consequence of this approach seems to have been the people swap, a knee-jerk short-term policy response which, in the government's quest for control, pushes questions of refugee protection to the periphery. Finally, in potentially shaping policies such as the people swap, the explanatory factors of populism, wedge politics, and a culture of control hold stark consequences for asylum seekers and refugees themselves. It is acknowledged that there were sizable humanitarian benefits encompassed in the people swap. Notably, it would have allowed protection to be granted to an additional 4,000 refugees. Yet, what of those unlucky... 800 would-be refugees made an example of by being sent to Malaysia. Although Gillard's former government maintained that their rearrangement with the Malaysian government would ensure that basic human rights standards were met, the lack of any legal basis underpinning this deal threw doubt over the government's ability to make such guarantees. This concern was only exasperated by reports highlighting the human rights abuses of non-citizens in Malaysia. Was this proposed trade-off worth it? For those asylum seekers attempting to reach Australia by boat, almost certainly the answer would have been no. Yet, if it were meant improving electoral chances, it seems this harsh trade-off was one some politicians were prepared to make. On this point, it is intriguing that more recently, on the 6th of July 2013, the newly appointed Immigration Minister Tony Burke admitted that the PeopleSwap policy was not workable in its current form and should be more comprehensive to cope with the challenge of people smuggling. Following that, on the 19th of July 2013, the reinstated Prime Minister Kevin Rudd announced his self-proclaimed hardline deterrence policy. Under this arrangement, all asylum seekers who attempt to arrive in Australia by boat will be sent to PNG for processing, and if found to be a refugee, remain in PNG for resettlement, an effective bypass around Australia. In this current political climate, one can only hope that the human rights of asylum seekers are not forsaken, notably on the eve of an election campaign.